We are, if you've been with us this calendar year, you know that we've been taking a journey through the biblical narrative. We started back in January in the book of Genesis, and we found our way into the life of King David, right in the middle of his life. And um, David has been a, a hero for us in many ways. He's been the guy that we've been uh, cheering for, uh, for uh, the protagonist of our story, and, uh, through his, all of his ups and all of his downs and all of the in-betweens. A couple weeks ago, we saw him uh, make a departure from where he should be. He, uh, the, the, the law that God gave Moses to the Israelites coming out of slavery to build their new nation on included laws for the future kings of Israel. And one of those laws was that the future king was not to multiply wives to himself because it would, it would affect his heart. It would ruin his heart. And David must have felt like he was an exception to that, like all the other rich and powerful people could do. He took multiple wives, and sure enough, um, it did have impact. We saw a couple different stories, but especially last week where David went to a place I don't think he ever thought he would go. He went down a path I don't think he ever expected to go to. He ended up um, committing um, a terrible act uh, of, through his, his power. Uh, while his men were away at war against the Ammonites, David uh, saw one of his mighty men, his specialty forces, his elite soldiers, one of his, that man's named Uriah. Uriah's wife lived nearby where David lived. He saw her, lusted after her, and abused his power to bring her in and um, had sex with her. And she became pregnant. And when she did, David did his best to bring Uriah back for an elaborate cover-up. It did not work out. And so David did the next thing to cover it up. He sent word to his commander at war and had him abandon Uriah in the middle of a hot battle spot and have him killed in battle to get rid of his problem. And now Uriah's dead. Bathsheba is pregnant and a widow grieving the loss of her husband. At some point, David brings her in to become one of his wives. Months go by, the baby's born. More time goes by and David is like, moving on, moving on. And it's shocking because, again, David's been such a great guy. And last week, we're like, whoa, what was that? Just, just the, the, the slow pattern down a path. And we, it might seem like he got away with it on some level, but as we saw at the end of last week's chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27 says that, but the Lord was displeased. The Lord was displeased with what David had done. Like God saw. David didn't, couldn't cover it up with God. And God was displeased, as he should be. It was a terrible, terrible action and we won't belabor it anymore. But today, the story continues from there. And I gotta tell you, I have a lot to cover. I went through this sermon five times from front to back before today. And this, is, this will be six and seven today. Okay, so, but uh, it's, it's, it's just a lot. I need a few extra minutes possibly today, okay? I just, it's just, it's possible that it might take a couple minutes to get through like three stories today. So if it takes us a while to get through three stories, my request to you would be uh, give me grace. And if, uh, if, if uh, that few extra minutes causes the, the, the roast beef to be burned, I apologize, but the good news is, is that Ben Cordercrack's back here is going to be buy you dinner on him as a way to make it up to you. He, he's looking out for you, so don't, don't worry about that at all. All right, thank you, Ben. Appreciate that. Thank you, Ben. You're a good man. Good man. <laughs> uh, by the way, I just lost my, I just lost my momentum, so while, I'm, while, I'm, while my momentum's lost, I want to quickly point out that Paul and Cricket Hugback here just celebrated 70 years of marriage, didn't you? 70 years of marriage. Congratulations to you both. <laughs> Wonderful. 
Good. Have you come and give the message today instead of me? That'd be great, okay? So, all right. Thank you, guys. You could, absolutely. It'd be shorter, probably, so that'd be good. All right, here goes. Here's the story. Oh, I got a whole thing now. Okay. So David, here's the story. So David um, had done wrong. So Nathan, the prophet, is sent to David. If we pick up the story in chapter 12 and verse 1. So the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to tell David a story. Now Nathan was a prophet that David has interacted with before when David wanted to bring his, um, when David wanted to bring his, um, uh, the temple, the tabernacle to the city and wanted to build a temple for the Lord. Uh, Nathan, the prophet, um, was sent to, by God to tell him, it's not time, don't do it yet. Um, it's, you're just, just, it's, it's your son's job. You have other things that you're gonna do. So, so David has a relationship where he trusts Nathan and Nathan has his ear. So God sent Nathan, the prophet, to tell David this story after what David had done. And here's, here's the story. He said there were two men in a certain town Okay, one was rich, one was poor. The rich man, he owned a great many sheep and cattle. He had lots of wealth, it was diversified, you know, sheep, cattle, everything. He's rich. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb that he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It was a family pet. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it. And prepared it for his guest. Was that story frustrating? Is that story just stir up something of, of anger against the abuse of this powerful and wealthy man? And if it makes you mad to read it, it made David mad to hear it. It says in verse number five that David was furious. As the Lord lives, as surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. So David is full on righteous indignation right now. The man who would do that deserves to die for what he did. David continues, he says, he must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one that he stole and for having no pity. Okay, so in other words, he, he, he needs to pay it back. Not that you can replace a man's lost pet. It's not like you can just like, oh, well, here's another one, right? I understand that, but, but still, because he did it out of a means to keep himself safe and for, as a means of not having a financial hardship to himself and took from the poor man, he needs to pay it back times multiple, multiple times over. Four lambs to the one. Uh, uh, repay with interest. And he deserves to die. So David's mad. And right about then, Nathan said to David, you are that man. Now, this has to be just a shocking moment in David's conversation. Like, David's got to be like, because he's all, Nathan was smart. Nathan didn't come to David and say, hey, David, you blew it. Because who knows how David would have been, been reacted. Oh, what? Hey, you know, who do you, who do you think you are? You know, or, you know, I have a reason. I've been under a lot of stress lately. Or I was provoked. Or, you know, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Look at all the good I do. Whatever David may have done to spin that thing, David was out of that lane when he heard the story and he's all, because that's what we do, right? It's, it's easy to be very angry about other people's sins that we don't like. 
Who did this terrible thing to this poor man? He deserves to die. He should pay it back. And he gets David to agree with him about injustice. And as David's just waxing eloquent about how bad that was and how it needs to be dealt with properly, Nathan says, it's you, buddy. You are that man. And I can imagine the, the shock, this, the, the snap. David immediately knew what he was referring to. And there's nothing he can say now but to face the harsh music that I am indeed that man. And Nathan continues, he says, the Lord, the God of Israel says that I anointed you the king of Israel and I saved you from the power of Saul and I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah and if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then? Have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you've murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites. Wasn't your sword, but it was you. You murdered Uriah and you've stolen his wife. God continues, he says, from this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. There's a lot in that verse. I want to just unpack a couple things. First of all, God says, in the previous verses, he says, David, you've been living in a, a bubble of blessing for quite some time. Prior to this, when I anointed you to be king and brought you out of nowhere, you went through a long path of being a fugitive, and that seemed so difficult and harsh, but all of that path was preparing you for the kingdom. It was making you into the man you needed to be someday. I surrounded you with key people during those years, and now I've brought you to the spot where I have just blessed you and blessed you. You live in a bubble of blessing, but the bubble just popped. You're going to find out how the world is, the dog-eat-dog -dog world that you have taken advantage of against others in this last story is coming your way. Because here's the thing. You just, God says, you despised me. Now, David might push back at this if he, if, he, if he wanted to and say, God, wait a minute. I didn't despise you. What are you talking about? I love you. I write songs about you. I mean, you're, you're my man. I mean, you could argue that I despised Uriah, although I used to like him. He's a great soldier. But, you know, I did get rid of him because he was in the way. And you could argue that I despised Bathsheba, though I, I can like her too. But, that's, but, you know, but here's the thing. You could argue that I did things like wrong to them, but God to you? No, you're great. But God was saying, here's the thing, David. What you did against them was against me because I made them and I love them. And, and by the way, every person that you not only hurt a woman I loved and a man I loved and all the people you involved in your conspiracy that were hurt by your actions and all the people that has, have heard the story because these things leak out and the rumor mill's running and people knew, all the people who were disappointed to see a king who was known as a man after God's own heart. That was Samuel's words about him. A man after God's own heart, a man who, who wrote songs about God and led and brought the worship of God to the center of the capital city does such a terrible thing, what does it say? Does it say that God is for that behavior? Does it say it's okay to do that? What kind of, what kind of damage does that do? What kind, of incur, what kind of other bad behavior could that encourage? Or what kind of righteous people could be discouraged to see something like that happen without consequence? And he says, listen, you, you did wrong against a lot of people, and most of all, my great name. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household 
to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he'll go to bed with them in public view. That's a harsh conversation. We could have a 20-minute conversation about. But ultimately, he says, David, you said earlier that this man who, in this fictional story, should pay back what he took from somebody else multiple times over. What happened to you is what's going to happen to you is you're going to experience what you did to others multiple times over. You did it secretly, but I will make this thing happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. Whew, harsh. Now, there's a mouthful that deserves a bigger conversation that we don't have time for today. But what happens next is important. Because I think at this point, Nathan the prophet stops talking and he holds his breath. Because what happens next is going to determine Nathan's future. David might react like so many people in history have reacted as people in power when they're confronted with a harsh message. You can read lots of ancient uh, Bible stories in the Old, Old Testament pages where you'll see people who, who um, at some point, at some point, were confronted with their sin and from a place of power, they executed the person who confronted them. So Nathan has confronted David. What's David gonna do? And what David does is this, verse 13 then David confessed to Nathan, yep, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, that is an understatement of what David does here. It's just, it's keeping us in the narrative. So let me explain something. It's keeping us in the narrative. But what David is doing here is a lot more than just saying, yeah, I was wrong. He is full on. We're going to see it in just a few minutes if you hang with me. He's going to, he full on owns it, publicly confesses with a broken heart and, and honesty and accepting. I mean, David, David just breaks down and says, yes, I'm guilty. I have sinned against the Lord. And before we explore what that looks like, in the story here, once he, once he does the right thing and owns it, Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. In other words, David, you know, you're, there's forgiveness for, uh, in your confession and you're not gonna die. And I know for some people, you know, that's like, well, what, he should die. He deserves capital punishment for what he did, right? I mean, he's not in a place where he could be handled by man's powers um, like um, we could today to someone who abuses power because he's a, he's a king, a monarch. But, but, you know, he should be put to death for what he did, God. And I know that, that depending on how you look at David, it depends on your emotions here. If David's a guy you've always cheered for and you're disappointed in his behavior. You hope to say, hey, he blew it, but he's still my guy. Let's go forward. You know, I'm gonna be, I'll, I'll, you know, I don't care what he's done. I'm for him. Yeah. On the other side, you have um, people say, kill him, cancel him. He's done for. But here's the thing. David, guys, guys I'm not going to have you kill for what you did. You'll live. Because I'm going to show you that mercy. There'll be consequences. He already explained there'll be consequences, but I'm, I'm going to show you that. It's like David comes out like the person who claims their guilt in court, and he finds a merciful sentence. You have faced it, and you won't die because of it. Not only is that mercy for David, but honestly, let's be honest, is mercy for Israel. For those who would say, well, just get rid of David, then what? Sometimes when we want to kill or cancel people that we're mad at for what they've done, we just want to be done with them. We forget that in our haste to judge them, that sometimes our harshness brings other consequences that we haven't thought through yet. For example, in this story, let's say someone could say, I don't care, just get rid of David. Then what, how does it help Israel? You know, David was the greatest king that Israel ever had prior to David and ever since David. In fact, David and his son Solomon 
are the best kings Israel ever had. After that, the kingdom is divided. You'll never see Israel be stronger as a nation than it was right now. I know David blew it right here, but overall, before and afterwards, David was a great king. Built Israel to its strongest era ever. What's God going to do? Say, I'm going I'm I'm to throw you out, and then what? Bring another Saul onto the throne? Get rid of David's family? And so God says, look, you're not going to die. And I'm going to show you forgiveness because, because you've confessed. But there is going to be a lot of fallout. And he just mentioned some of the fallout. Here's one more thing. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord, by doing this, your child will die, that, that baby that was born. Here God is saying, look, the whole nation just watched a man who's called a man for God's own heart, who writes songs about God and worships God, uh, do such a thing. And they're like, really? Is that okay to behave that way? Is there no consequences? And there will be consequences, but the immediate one, people are going to find out really quickly here that those things don't go without fallout. Those things don't go without consequence. And the first thing that's going to happen is, is they're going to see judgment fall all over your household right away. And David repents. Now I'm going to show you where David repents. Because David has a decision to make. Like, okay, God, that's between you and me. Let's keep it secret. Thank you very much. David is going to do the right thing finally. He should have done it a long time ago. Had he done the right thing, he wouldn't have messed with Bathsheba. Had he done the right thing, he wouldn't have covered it up and hurt her husband. But we're beyond that now. David's going to do the right thing finally. He's going to, he's going to confess and make it right the, the way that David knew how to do it best. Through song. David was a songwriter. We've read some of his songs. Many of them are included in the book of Psalms in the Hebrew, Hebrew Scriptures. And David's going to write some songs. He's going to write a song like he wrote, wrote the Shepherd Psalms, Psalms 23. We studied Psalms 27. There are others that we'll study later. But what I want you to see is that David in the story here is going to write a song to God of confession and repentance. And he's going to not keep it private. He's going to pass it on to the whole nation. He's going to say, everybody needs to know what I've done in case the rumor is slipping out there, and it is, that I did something bad, and I can either deny it or I can just be quiet about it and let the rumor spread and people wonder. I'm just going to nix it all right now, and I'm going to go public. Everyone's going to know what I did. I'm going to confess it publicly and openly. I'm going to be broken and accept the consequences with humility because everyone needs to know that this was not right and God is right and I am wrong and, and, and here's what it is. So he writes a song and he gives it to the whole nation. A song of repentance that we have 3,000 years later still written down as David goes public with his sin and his remorse and owns it. Let's read part of that psalm together. It's Psalms 51, verse number one. He says, have mercy. He's just, you'll see in a minute how broken he is. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion. In other words, he says, God, I'm not coming to you because I deserve it. I'm not saying, God, bless me because how good I am. No, it's because of how good you are. Because your love never fails. Because your compassion is great. I need mercy. He says, oh God, blot out the stain of my sins. Sin has left a crimson stain. Please wash it white as snow. He says, wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. This is important. He doesn't say, well, my mistake, my error, my lapse in judgment. I was provoked. You know, things happen. No, he says, I rebelled. I'm going to call it what it is. I'm going to call it out to the whole nation. It is, I rebelled against God. 
and I recognize it. And he says this, he says, it haunts me, it haunts me day and night. This is a little glimpse, because if you're wondering, since David had sinned, if David is just like, oh well, and moving on, if you're wondering if he felt bad before this moment where Nathan confronted him, this is our answer. That when Nathan confronted David, the, the, he, he was already ready to burst out in confession because he had been haunted day and night over his sin. He lay in bed at night and unable to sleep. He wake up in the middle of the night in terror over what he had done and shame and remorse. No doubt conversations along the way uh, in a very small circle where he tried to keep it contained, not with Bathsheba, but he's just living with his shame day upon day, trying to govern his nation, but living with the guilt and the, and the haunting of what he had done and building up inside of him until finally when he's confronted directly by Nathan the prophet, David just breaks down and says, yes, it's true. And as he writes the song, he says, God, I rebelled and it's been haunting me day in and night out. Verse four, he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. And we could read that and say, David, you didn't just sin against the Lord. What are you talking about? You sinned against, you sinned against Uriah. You sinned against Bathsheba. If it, arguably, you only sinned against them, not the Lord, if I didn't believe in the Lord. But, but David was saying, no, listen, it's obvious I sinned against them. I'm not saying I didn't sin against anybody else. I sinned against a lot of people in the story. But what I'm saying is what, what needs to be said, and that is that, that my sin is primarily, it, he's being poetic, he's being artistic as a writer. He's saying, God, my sin against you is so big that everything else pales. And my sins against many people don't exclude you, in fact, especially you. It's the same thing that we see hundreds of years earlier when Joseph was sold into slavery in Egypt. And when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, he said, your husband trusts me and I won't sin against the Lord by doing this. Because Joseph understood that doing that wrong was not just a sin against them, but against the Lord. And David is saying, I have overlooked the damage I've done to your name and so now I'm saying it's a big deal. And he says, God, you will be proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just. Did you catch that? David is saying, I'm no longer saying, I'm the king, I make the calls, I'm the king. He's saying, God, whatever you said is gonna happen to me because of my sin, I'm not gonna accuse you, I'm not gonna defend myself, you're right, I'm wrong. And whatever you say is gonna happen, I accept the consequences, it's just and it's right. He's humbled himself under his king. Down to verse seven, David says, he's just broken. So he says, purify me from my sins and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. David is saying, I've lost all my joy. And isn't that interesting? Because what David had done in the story, what David had done in the story in the first place was an attempt to make himself happy. He's like, I wanted to bring Bathsheba into my life because that would make me happy. But it didn't. I gotta cover up the, the, the sin against Uriah and have him killed because if that comes out, I won't be happy. David pursued what was best for him and it turns out in the end it robbed him of it all. That's how sin works. Sin can bring pleasure for a season, but when that season is over, then all of a sudden there's the, oh, now what? And David's at a spot where he says, man, I did the thing that I wanted to do for my sake to make me happy, and it's left me with no joy at all. Oh God, I've been, I've been haunted day and night. Give me my joy back again. I'm broken, God, I'm broken by what I've done. He says, don't keep looking at my sins. 
Remove the stain of my guilt. God, I can't bear to look at them myself. Please don't look at them anymore. Sponge away the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Verse 14, forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. And then I'll joyfully sing of your forgiveness. I'll make it about you. And all my songs from now on, not my righteousness or my goodness, but your greatness and your mercy. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. And then he makes something powerful at the end. He says, you, God, you do not desire a sacrifice or I'd offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. In other words, David is saying, I know how to play the religious game right now. I know how to trot on down to the old tabernacle. I brought the tabernacle here. I know about the burnt offerings and the sin offerings and all that stuff. I can go down to church, bring my offering and say, hey, yeah, I made some mistakes, but look at all the good I'm doing. Look at all my religious behaviors. Aren't those awesome? He says, God, I could go down and do the things that, that people would say, well, what a good man, what a good believer he is. What a good man of faith. I could do the religious rituals. I could let my good outweigh my bad, but it doesn't change the fact that my bad needs to be dealt with. It's a temptation always to, to just say, I'm just gonna do extra good. He says, God, that's not what you want. Here's what God wants. David said, the sacrifice that you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. That God, what you're looking for is very simply, not my behavior, not my religious trappings. What you're looking for, God, is my heart. Isn't that the point the whole time? Isn't that what God said way back in, those, in Deuteronomy when he said that the king should not multiply wives to himself because it will, it will ruin his heart? God was always concerned about David's heart. And David said, I, I abandoned that, but now that I've come to a spot where I've done wrong, you don't need my, my behaviors. You need my heart to be torn up about what I did wrong, to get right, to make things right, to, to understand the gravity, to, to get it right down here in my being. Because you won't reject a broken, repentant heart. And we understand that, don't we? Don't we understand that? Let's just be practical for a couple minutes here and talk about that. If, if anyone's ever wronged you before, if, if you've ever been wronged by somebody who hurt you, if, if, if what they did was they, after they hurt you, they just carried on like nothing ever happened, and you're left to wonder, like, do they even know what they did to me? Do they even realize what they did to me? Do they even care? Does it bother them what they did to me? Like if, if they did that, and then they, they were nice to you in other like just they were nice to you in other ways. You're like, yeah, but what about that thing? There's a, there's a, there's a wound there that 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 you just say that just it's not complete. But if they ever come to you and say, look, I admit what I've done. I realize it. I know I hurt you. I know how wrong I was, and I own it. And they are broken about it. They are broken and they are humble and they say, I am so, it might not fix the problem. It might not make everything better. You might still be angry at things you want to say, but boy, it can bring a path to healing, can't it? When someone just comes to you and owns it, it opens a door for there to be like, oh, I just needed to know that. I, I, I feel like I, I could be made whole. I can go forward. Let's flip that around. If there's ever someone that you've wronged before in your life, and you don't want to face it because you don't, that's uncomfortable. So you just run around and say, um, well, I'll just pretend like it never happened. And you never confront it. And they're left to wonder, do you know what you did? Do you care? And you're just going to be nice to them, but they're left, you're not giving them healing. 
There's something that's, you're holding something back. But if you go and say, I don't want to go because if I confront them, they might, they might not accept it. They might tell me what they really think, and I don't want to be uncomfortable. But isn't that the point when we wrong someone of being uncomfortable, of saying, yes, I'm going to be vulnerable, and I'm going to own it, and if you got something to say, I'm going to accept it, and I'm not going to push back, and I'm going to say, I am heartbroken, and I am sorry, and I am humble, and I want it. It might not fix the whole thing, and there may be fallout still, but you just gave them a path forward. Don't rob people because what people need, what you need, what I need, what we need when, when, there's, when there's a wound caused by someone's actions is we need to see that they're sorry from their heart. And we're made in the image of God who loves us and cares about our heart above all things. And David comes to God and says, God, you don't need my religion right now. You need my heart to know what I did was horrible. And God, I'm broken. I'm broken by it. And that's what I bring to you, my repentance. And here we see the difference between King Saul before and King David. I want to just throw this out at you because I know a few weeks ago people were saying to me, um, you know, Arlen, David's my favorite character. Some of you said this to me. I love David. He's my favorite character. And like last week, a couple people came up and said, never mind. He's not my favorite character anymore, you know, because of what he did last week's story. And, and then I think one person said to me, someone in the first service said to me last week, Saul and David became the same person. David became just like Saul and what he did. And in a way, that's very true. That Saul became a king, power ruined him, he went off the rails. And so did David in last week's story. But there's a difference. The difference between Saul and David was the repentance after the correction. In other words, when Saul was confronted, when Saul did wrong, and, and Samuel confronted Saul, what did Saul say? He's like, yeah, yeah, I know. Just honor me in front of the people. Okay, whatever, whatever. He, he, was, he, he, was, he was rough with Samuel. He intimidated Samuel. He kept doing what he did all the rest of his life. Never, ever changed course. Never seemed to own it. But when David messed up and messed up bad, he was approached and he was broken and he confessed it and he owned it and he repented and accepted what came from it afterwards. And I, I want that to be hope because I know that last week's story was so tough. And for some of us, I'm just saying, hey, walk, look where you're headed and, and don't go down the wrong path because you might end up in some place you don't want to be. And, and we made that point last week. But for some people in our room today or maybe online today, you're like Arlen, that story last week is too late for me. I've already blown it like David did. I've already done some things that I can't undo. There is no, there's no cautionary tale for me. It's too late for me. I've already made the bad mistakes. But here's the, here's the hope for you today. That there is a difference after our failures. And Saul and David, who both messed up as kings, took a different path. One was to continue and to say, whatever, I'm the king. And the other was to confess and repent and own it and accept what came from it face it. And there's a path forward that makes us, that can set you apart and set me apart when I'm wrong. Because as we saw, after David would someday die and his son named Solomon would become the next king of Israel, Solomon would write a wisdom literature, including the book of Proverbs, and, and Solomon wrote this very topic. We saw this last week in Proverbs 28, 13. He said that people who conceal their sins will not prosper. You might prosper for a while. You might get away with it for a while. But here's the thing. When you cover it up, it eventually catches up. But if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. 
that there's mercy to be found. Not that there's no consequence. There's still consequences, but there's mercy to be found when we confess it and own it. But when we cover it up, there's no path forward that's healthy from there. And David concealed it early, covered up early, and made it worse. But eventually he confessed it. He owned it and faced it and found mercy. You see, but I have a problem with that. He doesn't deserve mercy. They don't deserve mercy. But isn't that the point of mercy? Listen, grace and mercy always go to those who don't deserve it. Always. Because here's the thing. Those who deserve it don't need it. If I deserved all the good things, I don't need grace and mercy. The whole point of grace and mercy exists for those who don't deserve it. That's good for you and me as well. Otherwise, we've got to hope that we walk enough of a, of a perfect tightrope and on the right eggshells to stay in good favor. But the concepts of greatness and mercy that benefit all of us and others is the fact that when we don't deserve it, there's grace and mercy to be found. And David, when he owned what he did and faced it, he found the mercy. But not without consequence. There was still plenty of consequences. After Nathan the prophet, back to our first story, after Nathan the prophet left, sure enough, the, the baby, the child became ill. Deathly ill. And he realized he was probably not going to make it. And it says in 2 Samuel 12, 16, that David, David begged God to spare the child. He begged God. Like, he went without food and lay all night on the bare ground. In other words, he said, I don't want to eat. I'm not going to, I'm going to stay awake. I'm going to lay on the ground, not my bed, because there I won't be comfortable. If I do fall asleep out of exhaustion, I'll wake back up on the uncomfortable ground. I'll pray some more. I'm going to deny myself the comfort of food, deny the comfort of my bed, and I'm going to just beg and plead with God to spare this baby, to spare this child. And people were worried because this goes on for days, day after day after day. It says that the elders of his house pleaded with him to get up and to eat with them. Come on, king, you got to eat something. Get up. It's been days now. But he refused. And then on the seventh day, the child died. And David's advisors were afraid to tell him. They said, hey, he would not listen to reason when the child was ill. What drastic thing is he going to do when we tell him the child is dead? If he's, if he's that tore up when the child's ill, we're going to tell him the child's dead now because what's going to come next out of this guy? They are terrified to tell him the bad news. When David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he's dead. Then David got up from the ground. This is weird. David got up from the ground, washed himself, took a shower, put on lotions, changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and worshiped the Lord. And after that, he returned to the palace and was served food, and he ate. His advisors were amazed. They said, they said, they're like, we don't understand you. We don't get you, they told him. While the child was still living, you, ref you wept and you refused to eat. But now that the child is dead, you stopped your mourning and you're eating again. Like, what gives, buddy? And David's reply is interesting. It's telling. David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive. For I said, perhaps, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. In other words, 
while he was deathly ill, there was still a chance that a miracle could happen. While he was deathly ill, there was a chance this thing could turn around. And as long as there was a chance, I was willing to do whatever I could do about it. And I fasted and wept. But now, why should I fast when he's dead? Can I bring him back again? It's too late for that now. Now I can't change anything. Now it's over. He's, I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. And in this moment, David's giving us a little nod into something that, that you don't see a lot in the, in the Old Testament. You see a lot in the Christian writings, but not so much in the Old Covenant writings, where, where um, there's not much talk about the afterlife or life after death. In the Christian scriptures, it's everywhere, not so much back in the Hebrew writings. But you see it a few times, and David's one of them. David says, I will go to him. I'll see him again. There will be another reunion. You lose someone, there'll be a, a chance to be together again, but not down here. Down here, there's no coming back. I'm, I'm going on without him now. So yes, I did what I could do while he was still with us because there was hope and there was a chance. But once it was a done deal, I'm moving forward. And what David is doing with his grief process with his child is the same thing that David's doing with his repentance. David is saying, I shouldn't have done wrong, but I did. I had something I had to do. I had to own it. I had to face it. I had to accept the consequences. And then once it's time, once I've done all that can be done, we've got to move forward. And it illustrates something that we've taught here before, and, and it's a principle I've taught that it's been a while, but it's the difference between what we call conviction versus guilt. And let me just start by saying these are not the best words because you think of them in legal court terms. Conviction means you're convicted of a crime. Guilt means you're guilty, you're innocent. Don't think of these as legal courtroom terms. Think of them in a more slang way that we use them. Like I'm convicted by my behavior, by something I'm doing, or I have guilt about something I've done. Think of them in those terms. They're probably better terms than all the nerds can say. Actually, you should call it, do that later. Track with me right now for the sake of the point I'm trying to make. Convicted about things we've done or, or guilty, having guilt about things we've done. There's a difference in these two terms. Because conviction in that sense is always about things that you can change. And guilt's about things that you can't change. Conviction is looking ahead. Conviction is saying, you know, what do I need to do? What do I need to change? Do I need to stop doing something I'm doing? Do I need to start doing something I'm not doing? Do I need to own something I've already done and make it right? There's something that needs to be done still. That's conviction. Guilt is about things that are unfixable. They're just done. They're over. Conviction says, you know, I got to do what I need to do today for the sake of tomorrow. I got to do the right to, in the present for the sake of the future. Guilt says, let's let the past ruin your future. Conviction is how God operates because God's always looking forward. And yes, David had to, to own what he did wrong. That was part of the present. You got to own this thing because that's what's the right thing to do. But once it's done, we're looking forward. And guilt looks back at things that can no longer be dealt with other than shame. Conviction can be sweet. Because it gives us a path. Guilt is always bitter. Always bitter. Well, conviction comes from the Lord who, who leads forward. Guilt comes from the enemy. Conviction says that you are loved. And there is hope. Because if, if, if someone would bother, if God would bother to convict me, or someone would bother to come and challenge me today for the sake of my future, that means I'm loved and cared for and my future matters. But guilt doesn't give hope. Guilt says I'm hopeless and condemned. 
over things that can no longer be dealt with is just over rover. And whenever you face a feeling bad, whenever I want to give you a tool here. And maybe there's better terms, but take these until you find better ones. Whenever you're going through a space in your life where you're feeling bad about something in your life, I want you to start asking yourself, which are you experiencing? Are you experiencing conviction or are you experiencing guilt? Are you experiencing God challenging you to change something that needs to be changed, to start doing something you need to do or stop something you should stop or make something right that that you can do something hard to try to make right? Is God convicting you about something you're supposed to do? Or is it guilt about something that you can, that's already been dealt with and it's just, it's just behind, it just haunts you? There's a, ask yourself, am I experiencing conviction or guilt? And if it's conviction, thank the Lord and act on it. And if it's guilt, you gotta kick it to the curb because there's no path forward there. Now as I say that to you, I wanna say something else to you. That doesn't just go for you. That has to go for other people as well. If there's anyone else and they have something in their past, and you're like, you know, you got to let that go. So yeah, but they're guilty. you got to move forward. At some point, God is moving forward. By the way, when we don't let other people move forward once something's been confronted and dealt with, when we confine them or cancel them or don't let them move forward, you know, confining them to constant, um, you know, shame and, and, and no path forward and squalor, we're doing the work of the enemy, not the work of God. And when you do that to yourself, you're doing the work of the enemy in your, you, not the work of God. Because God says, let's go forward from here. Let's deal with it and let's move on. So are you dealing with conviction or guilt in your life? And are you dealing with conviction or guilt in someone else's life? It's important to know the difference. Because you may be stuck in the consequences and that's, that's a thing, but you don't have to be stuck in the past. And David decides, I've done what I can do I stepped out and made it right, and now I've owned it to the nation. I've owned it publicly. I've owned it to God. I've broken about it. There's already been fallout, and there's probably more coming, but all I can do now that I've done what I can do is start to move forward. And there is a path forward. Verse 24 says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he slept with her. Now, I know as you read that verse that someone would say, is that really a comfort to her? Like, oh, great. So David's going to come back. And isn't that what caused the problem in the first place? Like, thanks a lot for that gift of comfort. David's going to, you know, how is that helpful? Like, how, you know, that's what led to everything that's bad that's happened in her life. And I was going to say, it seems like he's, he's, he's um, doing wrong against her in this case. But, but what we're missing here is that according to the story, things have changed with the two of them. And I don't understand how that goes. I wasn't there. But as I read this, what we understand is something has changed. And I'm, let me speculate what I think it is. Is that in the first part of the story, that last week where David sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, David came from a place of power. He did what he wanted to do because he could. And Bathsheba lived in the wake of David's decisions as a man of, in a position of power. And all that has happened, even when, when she lost her husband and she was a widow, expecting a baby, not knowing where to turn, and David brought her in. He brought her into his, 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 one of his wives from a place of power. It's easy to despise that. But at some point, she's met a different David as time has marched on. She's met the David that was haunted day and night. But the David that finally burst out to the whole nation to confess this. And she met a man that no longer operated from power, but from brokenness that came and said, I have sinned and I am ashamed. That no longer stood from power, but in weakness said, God, whatever you do is right. I deserve the consequences. And who begged for mercy, 
Rather, he wasn't a man of power, but a man of weakness and brokenness and humility. And somewhere along the lines, their child, her child, his child, was sick. And she watched him grieve over their child like she was grieving. She watched him refuse to eat food and lay on the ground all night and refuse to sleep and beg God, not as a powerful king, but as a broken, desperate man, pleading for the life of her son whom she loved. And she watched him do that. And she watched him do that. She must have had a, a heart. This must have brought them together in some way. They lost so much together. And when it's all said and done, the baby's gone at some point along the lines, they found comfort as a couple together. And David comforted Bathsheba, and he slept with her. And she became pregnant again. And she gave birth to a son, and David named him Solomon. And this is where Solomon, the next king of Israel, enters the picture. To, born to Bathsheba, of all the people. The guy who would be the king who would write the stories that we read earlier about, about confessing and not covering up our sin. The one who would be the next best king of Israel and his legacy, Solomon, was born to David and Bathsheba. The future is born. And the last part of the verse says this, and the Lord loved the child. It always breaks me up when I, when I read it. The Lord loved the child. Like, in other words, as he grows, as, as, the, as, as the pages turn, as the consequences, of, as, as the public confession has come, as fall has happened, they begin to move forward and a new life is, is born. And this baby would be the next king of Israel. And God's like, no, 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 not you. You shouldn't even be here. You should never have happened. But God says that's been dealt with. And, and even from this bad situation, hope comes to Israel. And Solomon's born. And God says, I love that. God loved the child so much that he sends Nathan the prophet, remember Nathan the prophet, back to David to say, hey, David, God's got a nickname for the kid. Name him Jedediah, Solomon Jedediah, which means the Lord, beloved of the Lord. And God says, we're moving forward. And it's a crazy story the last couple of weeks. And David's gonna have a lot of tough days ahead because of the other stuff that's gonna happen down the line. Because when you throw a stone into the water, there's ripples and ripples, right? And David's, David's sin we read about last week is not done rippling throughout the story. But he's able to move forward. And so I want to leave you with a thought, and we'll wrap it up when, once we make this application. And that is this. That confession and repentance don't erase the hurt, but they do provide hope. Like confession and repentance for what we've done, owning what we've done, facing the music, facing the person, accepting what comes our way, it doesn't erase the hurt. There's still, there's still the hurt that was caused. There's still the hurt that, that comes from, from the fallout later on. Listen, it doesn't erase it all. But it does provide hope. There's mercy somewhere in the middle of that honesty. In the middle of someone saying, I accept what comes and I am brokenhearted and humble and I confess. 
It doesn't erase the hurt, but it does provide hope. And today, someone here needs to hear that. I don't know who you are. Maybe you're online. Maybe you're in person. Maybe you're here today, and you're, you're like Arlen again. It's last week's story of David's sin. That's not a warning to me, because I've already been down that path, and I already have the skeletons in my closet. I want to ask you this. Are you wrestling with conviction, or are you wrestling with guilt? If there's something you need to do about it, if someone you need to confront and confess and own something, if you need to face something that you're afraid to face, because it might not be comfortable, or if you need to accept what comes from this, then do the right thing. Maybe that is conviction. But if there's things that are behind you that just stay and haunt you and haunt you and come back around, my advice to you is this. Confession and repentance, kick guilt to the curb. Yes, the, the things are done, but when we confess and repent, there's hope. There is a path forward from there. And some of you desperately might need a path forward from something in your life that lingers. Here's the good news. God is looking forward. There is a path forward. You're loved. And that's not only true for you. That's also true for those other people who've done wrong before in the past. And they've had to face it. They need hope as well. Let's be people who when things go wrong, we deal with it the right way and then we provide hope for others and we embrace hope for ourselves. Otherwise, we're all in a whole lot of trouble on some level. But we have a God who gives grace and mercy to those who don't deserve it because those who deserve it don't need it. But don't we all? Is there something to confess? Is there something to repent? Or is there some conviction in your life that needs to be dealt with? Here's the good news. Deal with it, face the hurt, and find the hope. Is there things in your past that you've dealt with that still haunt you? Kick the guilt behind you. It's time to move forward by the grace of God. Move forward and let others do the same.